On the Nonlinear Healing Podcast, we talk about all the aspects of healing. The beautiful parts and the painful parts, too. We acknowledge that healing is not linear, and there are many ups and downs in every person's story. And in fact, we celebrate the messy parts just as much as the pretty parts. This is Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Nonlinear Healing Podcast with Courtney Brooke. Oh, I hope that this beautiful autumn day is finding you feeling rested and peaceful. Um, I know some of the energies can feel really chaotic right now. Um, There's this really underlying sense of healing um, and maybe a little bit of urgency around it. And um, today is a full moon, the day that I'm recording this. So I am coming to you all feeling very inspired very much in alignment. I also just got back from a trip with my husband. Uh, We went out to Finger Lakes, New York to celebrate our five-year wedding anniversary. It was gorgeous, just absolutely spectacular waterfalls and gorges and uh, I am just feeling very, very much reset and I hope that you all are getting some relief and feeling the same way. So to start off, I wanted to just clarify a few things from the last podcast because um, done is better than perfect and I needed to get it out there so I didn't quite cover everything I think that I wanted to say or needed to say, but I want to be clear on just a few things. So, as I was telling my story, um, when I was talking about my experience in high school, I mentioned that within about one year span that I completely shifted, but I never actually said what year that was. That was in my 10th grade year. So, that was from the time that I very first started dating that person, and then we broke up between the summer of my 10th and my 11th grade year. So... Within a year, I was, I was about 15 years old when I really shifted out of that whole very conservative, very quiet, very well-mannered girl into this more um, fully self-expressed version of myself. Uh, another thing I wanted to clarify is when I mentioned tools, I didn't mention the fact that I've been in therapy and on and off medications for 13 years. So... When I was 17, I had that inpatient admission, and that was when I started going to therapy. I've taken time off, but pretty much, I'd say, no longer than maybe a year to a year and a half. Um, I've been in therapy since then. I also have tried plenty of different medications, worked closely with a number of different doctors and things, um, and I actually am more of a CBD slash THC person now. Um, I think meds save lives every single day. And if medications are recommended for you, that you should definitely take them. And at points in my life, they were also recommended for me. And I took them. Um, now I go this other route where I um, have a little bit more of my own freedom and how I choose to medicate. And that works for me. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was around my story. So... There are several things in my adolescence that I very willfully, very mindfully leave out. Um, A lot of that is around my family and and issues. Um, The reason for that is because it's not my story to tell. So I tell my part in that story. um, But just know that during that time period, yes, there were a lot of things that were happening between my parents and have a little sister and a little brother and there were plenty of different drama and things that were happening there but that's not my story to tell. I may touch on it at different points as I interview guests and talk about different parts of my adolescence but for the most part I stuck to my own personal experience through adolescence and kind of shied away from the family stuff because frankly there are some parts of me that I want to share and then there are other parts of me that I still want to keep private and that's okay. Last clarification is I forgot to tell you all where you can find me. So mostly I'm active on Instagram at at Courtney 
Brooke, L-S-W. And Brooke is spelled with an E at the end. I'm also on Facebook, and that's by my name. So Courtney Kubocek, K-U-B-O-V-C-I-K. And also on Psychology Today is where you can find information on how to work with me. A couple of quick announcements here before we jump into today's interview with Brandon. Um, I am super excited to announce that we now officially have three different locations for our anxiety support group. So currently I offer in-person anxiety support groups um, at La Trobe at the Mangata, at Serenity Hill Counseling and Wellness in Connellsville, and also at the Space in Greensburg. So we have three upcoming meetings this month in October. The first is this Thursday at the Mangata in La Trobe. And this Thursday is, let me look at the date, that's the 13th of October. And then we also have an in-person at the Serenity Hill Counseling and Wellness in Connellsville, and that's on Monday the 17th. All of these start at 6.30, always 6.30 because we need time. I need time. And then we have Exhale, which is another version of the Anxiety Support Group. And that's going to be on Friday, October 21st at 6.30 at the Space in Greensburg. So super excited about those. You are welcome to join us in person. Um, Each of the groups are listed on Facebook, um, on each of the respective um, Facebook pages of the businesses. If you have any questions, you're welcome to message me. I'd be happy to give you some more information on that. I've been toying with the idea of offering an online version. So if you're interested in something like that, definitely message me too, because I'm trying to gauge to see if anybody would want to do that. So this interview, guys, with Brandon Thomas is one of my favorites that I've recorded so far. Brandon is just such an inspiration to me as a human being. I met him in the fall of 2018. Um, It was shortly after he had started going across Pennsylvania and giving his presentation called Ending the Stigma. And I was just so floored by him and his message. And I don't want to like spoil the presentation if anybody hasn't heard it and they plan to listen to him. But um, it is just very um, thoughtfully and well presented in a way that really makes you question your beliefs. And he has such a talent and such a skill for relating to other people. And I just find him to be this really authentic, um, very moving person. Um, since then, Brandon and I have become friends. Um, I always lean on him during difficult times when I'm having ethical dilemmas or just struggling with, I mean, being a social worker. Um, and he is such an up and coming or maybe even already arrived social worker here in Southwest PA or all of PA really. Um, he has presented at numerous different conferences, including the National Association of Social Workers, the NASW, the PA Conference, and many hospitals and clinics. Um, The UPMC Healthcare System has incorporated his workshop as part of the system-wide continuing education program for all of their employees. Um, The Pennsylvania Department of Health has also adopted his course as a training for EMS employees. He was awarded the Academic Community research honors college fellowship and that's really what funded his research addressing mental health and substance use stigma and bias in emergency room and healthcare providers i mean i could go on and on so when i say he's inspiring and moving i'm telling you he is moving he is changing things he is changing the way that people understand stigma and bias in healthcare settings and he's an inspiration for so many other people in his work he's a big part of the reason why i shared my story in a public way because he has such a way of sharing his story that it inspires other people to also share theirs and that's how we end stigma that's how we end bias by being human authentic open and transparent with one another so 
without further ado, I hope that you enjoy this interview with Brandon Thomas, MSW. So welcome to the Non-Linear Healing Podcast, Brandon. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me. Um, I want to thank you very much for the kind words and um, I guess it's really humbling um, to hear that my story and things that I've been doing had an impact on someone and has such an impact on someone. So it's, you know, very humbling, very dear to me. And it's an honor actually to um, be on this, on this interview and to actually talk to someone who was, you know, one of my audience members and, you know, getting to see how far they've went um, since we met about three years ago, four years ago. So, um, you know, thank you so much for having me on. Well, I am so honored to have you here as a guest, too. I remember um, the first time I saw you on stage, um, you shared your story in a way that I hadn't seen other people share. And the point of Nonlinear Healing Podcast is to share our stories and to share our healing journeys. Um, this is my way of sort of building evidence to show that we can heal and it can happen at any stage and we can do it together in communities. So to start, why don't you take me way back in time? Tell me around when you were born. You don't have to say exactly when, but maybe around when and, and sort of set a backdrop for us. Okay. So um, I am an army brat. So um, meaning that my father was actually in the military um, so I was born on a base um, in Japan, actually. Um, so I, I was born overseas on a military base. Um, and that was, um, I'm okay with my age. So it, um, that was 1971. Um, you know, from there, I uh, moved to Colorado. Um, lived there for a little bit. Then uh, my parents actually got separated. And so we came to Pittsburgh. And then um, my dad, at, during that time, my dad was stationed in Germany. Um, also, my brother was born in Colorado while we were there. So um, my dad was stationed in Germany. Um, they were kind of reconciling things. And so we went over to, we were sent for, and we went over to Germany and lived in Germany for about three years, I believe. Um, moved back to the States, back to Colorado for um, my started uh starting fourth grade i believe um so i was in colorado up until um going into 10th grade um i guess that's kind of if i'm looking back on things i guess uh when we talk about the idea of aces um adverse childhood experiences um i guess that's when i started having you know um probably getting scored um i was i witnessed from domestic violence, um, although I didn't have anything done to me physically, as we know, just witnessing, then there's not that emotional um, trauma piece. So um, there was that. And then um, my dad was stationed for training um, in another state and my mom had to just get up and go. And so with that, we had to leave base. And that was kind of like a loss to me because I was the longest that we had lived in one area. Um, so now we're off base. I don't have my friends anymore. Um, my family was gone, basically, because um, they were you know, got, getting a divorce. Um, and then it was just kind of like I shut down um, where... Basically, I just stopped doing stuff. Um, I stopped doing schoolwork. Um, I fought and argued a lot with my mom and my brother. Um, and a lot of it was probably just anger and confusion and hurt and sadness and you know things like that. Um, you know, all my friends had their family, and I, I remember even lying sometimes. Oh, they're just getting, they're just taking a break, you know, saying things like that. Cause I didn't really understand that. And when it's embarrassing. Um, wow. Then, 
Yeah. How did I not know that you weren't <laughs> born in the U.S.? That is amazing. I, I, I had no idea you traveled so much. Oh yeah, yep, yep. So, yeah. um, so it's kind of funny because if I say I was born in Japan, they're like, "But are you as a guest? I'm an American citizen." Yes, I am African American. My parents are both from the north side of Pittsburgh. Um, so it's kind of funny because you kind of have to explain yourself a little bit. But um, yeah, so that's pretty interesting. Um, it is. And so so your parents, they had originally separated, but mm-hmm. it sounds like they, they got back together and then later divorced, right? Yeah, they got back together. Um, and that's how we got into, that's how we got to Germany. I but see. Okay. So the abuse, the abuse was very continuous. Um, and if you know the cycle of abuse, um, isolate, and then you can continue on with the abuse and stuff like that. So that's kind of basically what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then finally, my mom just, you know, we have to get out of this. And she had an opportunity um, to do that. And out of protect, out of her need to get us out of this situation. Um, when the opportunity arose, she had already planned for that. And, and that's, and then the move was not, it was just going to happen. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I mean, separation and divorce in and of itself is an ACE, right. Is an adverse right. childhood experience. Right. And so, especially when you're kind of a child in that situation and you're caught in between like emotional warfare, you know, and, and you're having to deal with that and add that on top of traveling and having to leave friendships and, and things like that and relocate. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, you tell me, I'm sure travel played both a positive, but then also maybe had some negative effects too. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so the positives were, you know, me and my brother, we were in different countries with different communities you know we were able to adapt very quickly to different communities like you know i've lived in rural i've lived in suburban i've had you know base life or you know military life lived in a city i can adapt well to to Mm -hmm. new environments i can adapt well to people and different sorts of people because when you're on an army base you have people coming from all over the place um, but then the negatives, like you said, are the fact that, you know, you're moving every three years. So you learn very early on not to connect, mm. you know, not to not to get close. Yeah. Um, and although you don't realize it because you're little, you look back and you realize that you just you don't. You don't get close. So me being like, I'm a person that hangs out by myself. I don't hang out with a lot of people. And I think that's just part of, I think that's just a remnants of army life, you know, um, just mm-hmm. to get close to people. So it's been really hard to get close to people, to connect people. Um, you know, I have a couple of friends. I have one, you know, best friend that I've known for over 25 years, but that's, probably the longest staple a person you know I just you know then it's like trust issues and stuff so there's a lot that comes along with that yeah yeah and all of those things are also a symptom of trauma as well and having gone through you know the different experiences and okay so you're at this point you were moving back to the U.S. it sounds to me like your parents had decided to divorce. Your mom left pretty quickly. And then where did she go? Where did you go? So we went, we lived, we moved to a, she, she found a house. Like she had all this set up. <laughs> it was just like, he's, he's in, he's in training and we're out. So, um, so we lived, I, I would say maybe about five, seven miles away from base in a retired military community. Um, my mom was still trying to make sure that, you know, my dad was in our lives and, you know, to come and visit and things like that. But he just did not know the abuse continued, like, you know, from intimidation and things like that. Um, and then it just for me, it got to, you know, I was always fighting with my mom. And I think it was just like kind of blaming my mom. And then like my brother kind of sided with my mom. So then for me, it was like, OK, there's two people that I can argue with and I can blame. 
And so I would always be fighting, you know, arguing with my brother, nothing physical, but arguing with my brother, um, things like that, arguing with my mom. Um, and then it just got to be the point, like I said, not doing anything in school. Um, and I remember my mom telling me that a counselor told her, you need to let him go because he's not doing anything and he's not going to do anything. And so my mom was like, well, that's not happening, you know, and I was going to drop out of school. And she said, well, you know, as long as I have a breath in my body, you're walking across the stage. So she sent me to Pittsburgh um, to live with, for me to live with my uncle and my grandparents um, to have more positive, inf positive influences in my life, um, be around family. You know, we weren't around family a lot. You know, we would mm -hmm. visit and stuff like that. So I had to redo 10th grade. So I did that in, here in Pittsburgh. Um, and then I was doing well in school. You know, I was on honor roll and, you know, things like that. But I was still very, very shut down. Um, and it was actually a culture shock to be here. Because mm. now there's a lot of African-Americans. And initially I was like, oh, this is cool. But because I didn't talk like them, I didn't dress like them, I didn't act like them, I didn't do this, I, you know, my interests were different. And you kind of got shunned. I was, I was kind of shunned by my own community. Um, mm. So that was pretty painful. Um, so um, a lot of social anxiety. Um, I didn't talk a lot. Um, there's a, many, many times I would walk home from school. So I wasn't around people. Um, and then I kind of got into art again. And then I started playing sports again because I had played soccer um, when I was in, you know, on, bay, on army base. We had played for a lot of years and then I started playing for high school. So that kind of brought me out a little bit because um, I was, you know, pretty good at, you know, I was kind of a standout and things like that. Um, so, but then my dad returned back from Germany and he was, he still continued on. So this is like, you know, quite a few years after the divorce and it still continued like the intimidations and stuff like that. And even around our family, you know, like, you know, my mom's side, my dad, you know, like it just, it didn't stop. Um, and I guess, um, I started college and um, then finally it came down to me and my brother confronted my dad and after we confronted him, then it stopped. Um, so that was that part as far as like family, um, family dynamics and, and how that may have kind of impacted the way I kind of am now still. Mm-hmm. And then I guess my first loss, like true loss, was um I was working for the city for the swimming pools and stuff like that. And I had met some people and we were friends and we hung out. And um there was a love triangle, you know. So two of my friends were kind of liking each other, and one had an ex-boyfriend who um, would hang out at the pools and he kind of found out a little bit and he came to my house and asked me about it and I was like oh you know nothing's going on we're all just friends but I kind of knew um, and I remember him telling me well if it was another guy then I'd kill him you know I'd shoot him and I was like you know I was like you need to stop talking like that that is ridiculous he's like yeah you're right he's like I didn't mean that and um, went back up to school and it was like a week or two later, I got a phone call on a Saturday morning that my two friends had been ambushed and one of them was killed. Um, and the other one was um, shot three times and she survived. But, um, and they ended up getting the perpetrator or the, the shooter. And um, that's the first time I experienced a loss. Like, mm. what does this even mean? You know, and... And you have guilt because, like, I knew, like, he said this was going to happen. Yeah. But, I mean, in that moment, how many times do we hear that? It's so normalized, yeah. right? It's yeah. so normalized to talk like that. And it's so unfortunate. Um, 
America is a gun is a poem that I just read on social media, but, you know, gun violence and things like that, it's, it's awful and it happens all the time. And this is before, you know, so I graduated high school in, in 1990. And so this was about, this was 92, I believe that this happened. Um, so there wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. Well, isn't that right around when it kind of started though? It, it, I yeah. mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it was sometime around then that Sandy Hook's shooting occurred, right? Um, I think it was a little bit later. I think Sandy Hook was a little bit later than that. Okay. Um, but I, I, I know like me coming out of high school, that's like when gang warfare was kind of started to really um, mm. get started and but I guess for me, it was like, like I never experienced that. I, I, like, I, I don't even, I, I can't, I could not wrap my head around that. Like, mm-hmm. how do you kill somebody? And like, so now it's someone that I know and I knew all the parties involved and I'm usually with them at the time that it shot that, you know, this happened. So, um, so there was a lot of um, guilt. Um, then right after that, um, I was dating someone and then we ended up breaking up and a lot of that was due to race. Um, uh, she was um, white and and so there was the race issue. So that was why that happened. So then there's another loss. Wow. And, and after that, then it started triggering. Um, I, mean, I, I just want to comment on that for a moment because so I, I was born in 92 And so for me, that seems so asinine, right? I wouldn't think that something like that would have happened in my lifetime. So was that like a common thing that was happening at that time? Like, was that normal as well? The, the shoot, no, I mean, like the gangs were starting to pop up, like I said. No, I'm talking about the the fact that, you know, you guys had to break up because of race. Oh, oh. It was related to race. That was common. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so, um, so during my time at Slipper Rock, you had the Rodney King incident that happened. Um, you had the million man March that happened. You had desert storm that happened. So I was in college when that stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And then we had incidents on campus. So we had burning of the cross. Um, we had fraternities who were dressed in clans outfits um it was supposedly part of their rituals um you had fraternities who had the confederate flag on their shoulders um you know there was um there's incidents were you know black versus white um yeah so it, it was definitely happening um you know i remember like you could date a white girl or you know outside of your race but when the weekend comes dinner you don't come around each other because the family um mm. you know, mom and dad so wow. it, was, it was definitely a thing that and i remember being hurt by that because like you know my my actual first racial incident um was living in colorado being in fifth grade fourth or fifth grade and walking on the lawn and being called a little n-word and they get off the lawn or mm. having the sprinklers turned on um, when you're on their lawn. Yeah. That, um, not our, I, I remember the girl's name, but um, we were playing like with our, you know, I had my action figures, she had her Barbies and her dad called her to the door and said, um, we don't play with little ends. And mm. she told me to go home. That was my first incident of race. Yeah. So and now, that's a type of trauma as well. Right. right. Yeah. That racial trauma. Yeah. So then, you know, so you have, so you have that going on and then, you know, experiencing these back-to-back losses and then it got to be where I guess my first depressive episode um, where um, I had suicidal ideations. Um, I kind of, I would say like it was kind of a superficial attempt um, but I knew that I needed to get help. My dad knew that I needed to get help. Um, so um, I signed a 201, uh, which is involuntary, I mean, which is voluntary um, commitment um, to a hospital up in Butler. 
And I was there for a few days, um, to get on medications to start working with depression. But I didn't stick with it, but now you're talking about the embarrassment of having a mental health disorder. Um, and how do you deal with that? How do you try to explain that to other people when you don't really know what's going on yourself? Mm-hmm. So, um, so eventually I just, I dropped out of college because um, I wasn't doing well in college. Um, from there, I moved to Wisconsin uh, with, one, with my best friend and to try to just kind of refocus and, you know, get back on stable ground. And I was doing okay, um, but definitely facing some racial um, stuff going on out there. Where we, the first town that I lived in, um, lots of fighting, lots of um, drinking. Um, you know, I met my daughter, my oldest daughter's mom there. Um, so there was, there was some racial tension with that. And then um, I ended up moving to another area and um, I was starting to deteriorate again. Um, and 2001, I'm sorry, 1999, um, it just got to be the point of being so bad for me where I just seen darkness, like that's all I could see. There was nothing that could bring me joy. There was nothing that I was could be happy about. Um, I was drinking more. And then I remember, because my daughter was about six, three to six months old, and I remember going over to visit her and um, told her, you know, that I'm sorry and, you know, that I love her and, you know, said goodbye. And and I went home and I attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a significant attempt um, why I say it's significant is because my heart stopped twice um, from when yeah. I old. So once in the ambulance, once in the ER. Um, I woke up a few days later. Uh, my friend was there. He had driven back from Pennsylvania to come and, you know, take me home to get treatment. Um, and you feel like the embarrassment of that. But they also feel like a failure, kind of like I'm still here, like that I can't even get that right. I, you know, I, I can't even do that um, type feelings. Um, mm-hmm. So when I came back here, I was diagnosed with bipolar two disorder um, and major depressive disorder, I believe, was what they were saying. Um, went back to Wisconsin because I didn't want to be with all my daughter, which seems ironic to say that. Um, because you say you don't want to be without your daughter, yet you try to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So you can question that, right? Yeah. Uh, but and a lot of people will say that it's selfish. And I would challenge them is that when you are in that much pain, when you all you are just surrounded by darkness, you just want that to stop. You yeah. just want it to be done. Um, and that seems like your only way. And it's hard. I think it's hard for people to grasp it unless they've experienced it. Right. Um, which I'm not sure how people haven't had at least some experience with it, right? Or witnessed it or been close to it. But it amazes me how some people can call a significant attempt like that a selfish thing, because if anything, you know, um, it's not done ever with the intent to hurt other people and other people are often the reason why people decide to stay here. Right. right? So, but I, I do, you know, I, I had a very, um, superficial attempt at one point and to experience that darkness. And I know exactly the darkness that you're talking about and to come out of that place, um, it, it takes a miracle, you know, it really takes something or someone to pull you out of that. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think, I think initially it has, it's something or someone because it allows you to anchor. Yeah. You know? And then as you're getting better, then you start looking at yourself as the anchor. 
Um, yeah. But, I, but initially, it's almost like being, you know, in a swimming pool in a deep end or in the ocean, and someone throws you a buoy, and you hold on to that for like dear life. But then you start getting confident, and you start moving away from the buoy. Yeah. And you start treading water yourself. So I think that's I think that's a definite um, assessment of that. Yeah. And I think for you, it's like your daughter was that buoy, right? Your daughter was that thing that maybe helped guide you out of that really dark place that you were fortunate to to survive, you know? Yeah. My mom would always say that, um, that she was a gift. Like she was the gift to me. Um, and like her name actually means song of life. Um, and oh that's so beautiful yeah <laughs> so it's so from there like it seemed like things were getting better um I started working with mental health um and then I, I was wasn't drinking as much um but I was still kind of struggling and um you know, still feeling like alone and detached from the world, I felt like. Um, mm-hmm. And then when, when I started working with those those individuals with eating disorders, um, you know, realizing some of the things that they're going through is like some of the things that I feel as far as like depression and, you know, you talk about trauma and things like that and impact. But I also f- knew that what I was doing and, th- and things like that was not right. I was not a, but continued with it um, as far as like perpetrating stigma and biases. Um, mm-hmm. I can get back into that later, but I, um, so once I started working with, in, with those individuals, um, I became a firefighter, a volunteer firefighter EMT, loved it. Um, it was awesome. It was one of the first things I ever completed. Um, so I was really proud of myself um, for that. Um, I was that I did that for about six years and then towards the end of my career then we started getting some really bad calls Um, and then that's when the drinking started intensifying again Um, it was to stop seeing the incidents Mm -hmm. Um, like stop seeing the ghost Um, stop hearing the pagers like you're always hyper vigilant with hearing pagers I always wanted to be on the calls um so for me there's three calls three or four calls that were really really bad um that was very hard to shake and um and actually my last my very last call was a really really bad call that that involved pediatric patients Mm. So it was, we lost four people that day. So two kids, mm. or actually three kids. One was in utero who was due to be born the next week. And then the mom. Um, so being on that call, you know, um, being on a call where I'm doing CPR and I'm bagging someone and having paramedics look at you and, and say, are you good? Are you good? And you say, yeah. And that means you stop all life sustaining, all life measures. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so having that with you, so a lot of drinking, and then it became the you know drinking and driving, um, and then eventually um, got over a course of twelve years or so, um, had three DUIs. This last, the last one were um, had it where I um, was convicted of the third DUI, and I was in jail for three months. So now you're talking about guilt, you're talking about shame, you're talking about feelings of failure, you're talking about being anxious and lonely and scared. You know, I don't know what jail is about, you know. Um, yeah, I mean. How do you deal with that? You know, how do you deal? And you're out there by yourself. Yeah. And, and I couldn't see my kids for three months. And. You know, so how do you, how do you, and the fact that you're a firefighter, I like, I'm trained to cut you out of cars. One of my worst calls was an alcohol-related related crash. Um, that was the one I had to do CPR on, we lost them. So, mm-hmm. so having all of that and having to sit with that um, in jail, 
and how do people look at you now and how many friends you lost because of that. Um, and then while in jail, um, I had a week left and I was trying to get in touch with my dad and I couldn't get in touch with him. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just see it. You know, my, my last conversation, I was telling him, oh, you know, when I get back there, I'm going to play cards. I learn cards, blah, blah, blah. And um, having a correction officer come to your door at night, your cell door at night, and say, hey, Thomas, I got some bad news for you, bud. And I'm thinking, like, you're going to try to keep me going. I was like, well, I didn't do anything, so we're not staying longer. So there needs to be something else to, that you have bad news about. And there was. Um, so it told me that they found my dad. Um, he had been missing for 10 days and that he was a victim of homicide and that I can call home in the morning. So my last conversation with my dad was from a jail cell at my, lone, at my lowest point. I wanted the, the second lowest point of my life. And I don't get to see him anymore. And I don't get to have a conversation anymore. And that's something that I still struggle with now um, because, so that's when I got to talk to him last, but he doesn't get to see that 12 years later, I graduated with two degrees and yeah. for the University of Pittsburgh. And yeah, I've been places and talked to people and trained people when I'm better, you know, I'm not sick anymore, quote unquote sick anymore. And he doesn't get to see that. So wow. I still um, struggle with that. And even though someone may question and say, but your dad was abusive and da da da, he's still my dad. You know? It's complicated. It's yeah. really complicated with those types of dynamics. I, I just, so you, you went through all this secondary trauma, right? All this exposure and the drinking picked up. I mean, we see that that happens all the time. And I think to add, then you have the DUIs and then the, the loss of your father. I mean, that is just like a storm of things that I'm not sure too many people would be standing at the end of that. You know, I, I think that, especially when it comes to drinking and I, I want to have this conversation with you because I, I'm curious what you have to say about this. But when I reflect back on the periods of my life where my drinking really intensified, they were periods that were the darkest periods of my life. They were periods that I was dealing with loss and things like that. And you, of course, went through a very similar experience. And I see that quite often with my patients. And in retrospect, I go, well, in a way, was that keeping me here, right? In a way, was the drinking and those drunk nights with friends the thing that I used to survive that period? Now, of course, it had its own repercussions, and of, if there are other mechanisms for coping, then we should always, always use them. But when we live in a society that makes it weird for people to like go and do yoga in a park and cool to go get drunk with their friends every day after their shift, um, then people, of course, are going to gravitate towards the latter. Right. And that is much more culturally accepted than say somebody who, um, well, I, I guess it's changing, but you know, somebody who might live like a super holistic lifestyle or something like that. And it's like, it, it has, it's almost like alcohol is an escape mechanism for a lot of people without them ever even realizing it. They're not even seeing what they're trying to escape because it's so normalized. Right. That's, that's exactly. So, you know, as you know, I, I am an associate training coordinator um, for Pit Night. We talk about substance use and I've worked in the substance use arena. And when we talk about other mechanisms, when you're in the thralls, of darkness and shame and guilt and loneliness and depression 
you don't see, you're not seeing clearly or thinking clearly about go get a devotional and read devotions out of your book or go to the gym and do exercise. You're looking, we're looking for that quick fix and how do we numb it out? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to feel. And one of the things I have, I've always said is now what happens is we have to learn how to be comfortable in the state of discomfort. And we are not okay with that all the time. Mm-hmm. And you have to wait, you have to get to that point to where you can sit and journal or read a book or go for a walk and be thinking about these things and be uncomfortable and know that it's okay to be uncomfortable, you know, and we don't, but we don't see that when you talk, when we talk about alcohol use or substance use, you know, many of the individuals, it is a way, it is an escape. It is a way for, um, to numb out, to forget pain, sometimes to prep for pain. You know, if you have, and if you're in an abusive situation, you know, you know what's coming. So let me prep and get, you know, high on these substances or get drunk. That way I'm not going to feel it, you know, yeah. like that. So, um, and, and the thing about alcohol, for instance, is it's legal. So yeah. it's very accessible um, and things like that. So it's easy to get, and like you, I like the way you said that it's, you know, like that's the norm of coping rather than going and doing yoga. Like, I mean, you can ask, how many people can you ask at your job and say, hey, does anyone want to go out and have a couple of drinks? We had a really, and, and you say, they say, oh yeah, I want to go. Then yeah. ask them, why are you going out to have a drink? Because I have a rough day, because I had a bad day, you know? And now if you go and ask first responders, for instance, so why do you, why do you go out after a shift? Because we had a rough day. We had a really couple of bad calls. So why is that different than this individual who's had a rough life? Yeah. And they're reaching out for a substance or they're reaching out for alcohol. Why, why are we so different from them? Yeah. Because we treat addicts like criminals, right? People who have addictions are not treated the the way that they do in some other countries. In some other countries, they treat it like a mental health issue, right? And they intervene in a way that doesn't, you know, criminalize and throw people in jail cells like you had to experience. Clearly, you were battling an addiction. You're not telling me there wasn't a better way. Um, so you're here in the cell. You, you just get the information. You, you lost your dad. You're reliving those, those final conversations with him and take me, take me through the rest of your journey here. Um, well, I, you know, I came back to Pennsylvania, you know, one of the first things I did was had to bury my dad. Um, you know, so going to the grave site, getting hit, watching him get his military honors, um, getting his flag. Um, so it was just a state of numbness. I didn't talk about it. Um, I didn't, I didn't think about it. Um, and it wasn't, and then I went right away to sign up for treatment. So for me, treatment looked like getting a therapist, getting a doctor, going to all these different groups, as many as I could go to. Um, I was in therapy. I was doing something with my mental health every day of the week um, until I got a job. Um, I went to, I went to like, you know, when I talked about alcohol abuse, I went to post-traumatic stress disorder groups. I went to bipolar, anything that could help me out because I wanted to get better. Um, Can I ask, because mm-hmm. I wonder why, because so many people may have walked out of that cell, walked out of that jail and never thought about treatment, instead might've gone into a place of even deeper darkness. So why, why do you think that was that you were ready to do the work? I think initially because my goal was to get back to see the girls by the end of summer, Mm. right? The reality of it was, and it was like such a hard reality to hear from my family is like, you're not going to be able to go back. And I was already doing treatment and then it was just like, get better. And then 
Um, I ended up being on disability 100% for two years. And then that was a motivator because I wanted to be off of it. I didn't really want to be on it, but mm -hmm. I knew that I couldn't work at the time. Um, so my goal was to get off of it. Um, so I worked really hard to do that. Um, and then it kind of became ingrained in me and partly because of my friend, um, you know, you never give up ever. Mm. And so it just kept on driving me. Um, I was dating someone and then they just kind of up and left. And then they called me back and they said, this was another very key aspect of me continuing on and pushing myself was I was told that I would never amount. I would never, I don't have anything to offer. I won't have anything to offer someone. Mm. So when that was said to me, then I went to, um, Bidwell earned my medical assistance license. And then from it just kept on push, push, push. Um, I finally got off of um, disability. Um, I just want, I wanted to be, I knew that I could be, I could be healthy and I can um, be stronger. And I, I wanted confidence. I wanted to kind of like exercise these demons that were going on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went through EMDR. Um, sitting down really like my sessions were actually acting out the scene mm. um, which is something like right now if you're next to me I can set the scene up for you where people were standing things like I can still do that um and I quit firefighting 2008 so I can still do that um is it hard do I get triggered yes actually um last week I was on my way um, over to my girlfriend's house and um, there was an accident and I knew it was bad. And I knew, and then in my head, I can play it out. Like what's going to happen or what's going on. And I said, okay, there's too many trucks there. They're going to be calling flight in and here comes flight orbiting coming around. And I remember that, that grip that I had, like the anxiety, I had tears, um, it took me a couple of days to kind of bounce out of that. Mm. But I know years ago, it had been take a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Or a fester over it. I like, keep talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. Um, so those are some of the things I just kept, you know, I just, I wanted to get, and then my goal was I've, I've always wanted to get my degree. And so, you know, going, um, enrolling in the University of Pittsburgh, and I just said, you know, I want to get my degree. Um, and then it just, things just kind of kept happening. And, you know, for me, the support systems, there's so much support that I've had in this journey, you know, in the last 12 years throughout my life, you know, from my mom, my brother, you know, a couple of very close friends, a couple of people that I've met along the way, um, professors, advisors, you know, and the idea of wanting to give back some kind of way. Um, and now getting to a point where I've accepted myself. So, you know, I talked to you about perpetrating stigma and bias myself on the community that I am a part of and looking back and acknowledging the fact that it was because I didn't like myself. And I seen myself and some of the patients and when that happens, you don't want to be dealing with them, you know? Yeah. yeah. Now acknowledging, you know, I don't say realize because realize makes it seem like you never knew. Oh, I knew that what I was saying was wrong and what I was thinking was wrong. I knew it was just a matter of, you know, now acknowledging that. Um, and it's now just kind of looking back over things and kind of being able I still have to work on this, but being able to like say that I'm proud of myself or, you know, take credit. If someone's giving me credit, like take that credit and be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to highlight here a little bit, the experience you talked about from last week when you were re-triggered maybe a little bit in that moment, because here's the thing about healing that I found to be true. And it sounds like you've also experienced as well. It's not like 
there's an end to this, right. right? Right. Like you can do the work, but you, you almost have to show up and do the work every day. Right. And what you did last week is you, you let yourself sit in that uncomfortable place. You allowed yourself to experience the emotion without needing to numb out. Right. And I'm assuming, like you mentioned support, I'm assuming, you know, that that was part of your treatment process too, was like creating that support system around you. And it's easier to sit in the uncomfortable place when you have that support, when you have that um, safe place to experience it. Yeah. Like that person that you or the people, you know, that you call your support it's not that they have to have experienced those same things or even understand, you know, with me or even understand what it is like to be a firefighter or, you know, things like that, but you have to be safe with that person. And actually, you know, my call or my text was to my girlfriend and say, I just witnessed a bad accident. Mm. Like, okay, this is really bad. And then I'm describing a little bit as what I'm feeling while I'm sitting in traffic and I'm with her and, you know, she may not fully understand and that's okay. But I think allowing your, allowing yourself to include support yeah. is helpful because we kind of, if you've been through a lot of stuff um, and you haven't felt like you've had support before, then you will go in it by yourself. And then that's where you can kind of get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely like, like you said, allowing yourself, you know, like, and I always say this because I've always said it to my patients, you know, you, you have to find a way to be comfortable in the state of discomfort um, Yeah, and then sit with that for a little bit. It will pass, but it, it will be uncomfortable for now. And just because you're uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean that you're turning into, you're turning back into the, the experiences that you've lived before yeah right, right now as you know right now it's uncomfortable there is not a timeline to trauma um you know you'd think about vietnam vets for instance or you know those individuals that are still survived from you know the holocaust and things like that like they still are triggered you know but they're still but they're able to move on and be able to, able to talk about it and things like that so there is no timeline to trauma Yeah. Yeah. And that's the point of this podcast is to talk about the fact that this is nonlinear. You're going to go up, you're going to go down, you're going to go backward, forward. It just is what it is. And when you kind of let go of this, you know, well, it's always going to be positive. It's always going to be like this is that's really where you can come to a place of acceptance and just knowing that like, Hey, it's okay. If I get triggered sometimes, at least I know it because sometimes I think what happens is people just get irritated or agitated and they're not recognizing the trigger, right? So they don't even know how to put a name to it. So the insight, that's really, that's really the key. Yeah. I felt like when I would feel down or whatever, then I would get scared and I would mm-hmm. you know, talk to my therapist about it and I would get scared because then I feel like I'm going back into that darkness. And, you know, she had to kind of just keep reminding me, you're not going back into the darkness. You got triggered by this specific event that happened today and it's uncomfortable, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going back into that dark space, you know? Exactly. You know, it it can still be kind of scary though. Oh yeah, exactly. And I know we keep talking about support and that's been a really amazing tool for you in your healing journey, but maybe tell us a little bit about some of the other tools and things that you've used along your non-linear healing journey. Um, so for me, I, I read my devotionals, which I need to get back into because I've been slacking on that a little bit. Um, structure, you know, a lot of structure, um, which I kind of struggled with because like school stopped, you know, I graduated in December. So now finding a way to structure put other things in my life that keep me structured. Um, And also I have what's called a battle plan. So I create this plan and this is how my goals are going to be accomplished. I think very, very militaristically. And so when I put it in that aspect, then it's a mission and there's objectives and there's, 
you know, action to it. And that helps me kind of stay on task um, with certain things, especially goals that I'm trying to attend, that I'm trying to attain. Uh, I don't do a lot of talking outside of therapy. Um, Still, um, at least around from anyone here in in Pittsburgh. Um, Also, I guess for me, things that have helped like is talking about my journey um, during the presentations that I do. Like that's a very healing factor and a very weight it takes more and more and more weight off of you mm-hmm. because you're you're talking about this and the more you're talking about the more acceptance that you're giving yourself um so I, I, and then you know like i know my my girlfriend um she does she has asked me you know quite a bit about my journey so if there's someone that i would talk to it, you know, it would be her, you know, and she encourages you to do that, encourages me to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's really, that's really good. Um, and then just kind of hearing other people sort of like being around, like, I know we talk sometimes and, you know, like you might tell me things that are going on or whatever, but so someone that's kind of in that realm with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess that's, you know, I go to therapy um, every couple of weeks as a maintenance protocol. I take my medications. I'm very um, regimented with my medications. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Well, Brandon, I am so glad that our journeys have intersected and that I have um, had the privilege of meeting you and working with you on a couple of different things and I'm excited um, to hopefully collaborate again here soon and I know you're going to be coming to my hospital to speak next month I say my hospital but the hospital that I work at Um, but I am um, so glad that you're able to share your story here I think it is such a healing thing Um, so any last words of advice that you would give to somebody along their healing journey um, maybe some words of wisdom or any insight that you might have to share with my audience. Um, I guess first and foremost, you are not a bad person because you've had negative life experiences. Um, I would encourage you to um, reach out for ask for help first and foremost, and then accept the help that is being offered to you. Um, learn to be comfortable in the state of discomfort. Um, it will pass and to never, ever give up, ever give up, um, you know, and that we recover, you know, that we, we do recover and however your life looks, however you perceive your life looking into recovery, you know, that's, that's what can happen, but we do recover. You're not a bad person. You're not just bipolar. You're not just eating disorder. You're not, you're none of that. You're a human being who happens to have a disorder that is mm-hmm. treatable. Um, and when you say that something's chronic and treatable, that also means that there's hope that you can go into recovery. Wow, you guys. I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed interviewing Brandon. Just a couple of comments here. I want to echo him when he says that you are not a bad person. I remember that feeling of guilt and shame and how the decisions I made hurt other people and I believed that I was a bad person. I know now that the person that I was at that point in my life wasn't really me and wasn't really a reflection of who I am, not in my core. Um, I'm not a bad person. I never was a bad person. I made bad choices and I did bad things, but that doesn't define who I am. Um, And that doesn't define who you are either. So, so many times I talk to people, especially at my work in the hospital, who will tell me, well, you don't understand. I've done X, Y, or Z. I'm such a terrible person. There's just no hope for me. And I am here to tell you that there is always hope, um, that you do always have a choice 
you can always make a different choice next time and your choices don't define um, who you are and the more that you get clear on why you're making the choices that you are the better you'll be able to make the choices that are more in alignment with who you truly are your true self your core self Ah, so yes, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in order to become clear on who you are. And Brandon, yes, we do recover. We all have the opportunity to grow and learn. And we can only ever do that with the right help and the right support and a lot of structure and a lot, a lot of authenticity. So, I hope that you all enjoyed the interview, and if you did, please like, share, comment, Um, let us know that you enjoyed. We are here sharing our stories to help inspire other people, and we can only inspire other people if our stories are out there. So, like this, share this, tag us. And message me if you're inspired by Brandon and if you want to connect with him. I know we didn't talk about really where to follow him on social media, but he's a rather private person, so I really don't know what to tell you as far as where to follow him. But if you want to get in contact with him, you can message me and I will help you get into contact with him. Um, So thank you all for listening. I hope you have a blessed day. And always remember, friend, you are worthy of health and abundance. Thank you.